Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Welcome back. If you've been to um, the earlier sessions in this track, welcome back to uh, The Difference Jesus Makes. Of course, this is our last session together. I know, I know. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. My Father, I pray that this afternoon we may see the deep, true, robust comfort that Jesus gives to us who are deep in sin, in pain, in bereavement. Help us to see the comfort that he gives. And so enable us to say that in all things, even in our sufferings, we rejoice in him. In his great name we pray now. Amen. Yes, we, this um, series has been um, called The Difference Jesus Makes, and um, in this last session we've looked at the difference Jesus makes to our view of God, to our view of ourselves, to our prayer life, and today we're going to be looking at the difference Jesus makes to, well I've said the hard times, but in many ways aren't all times hard times in various ways? So I'm really looking at the difference Jesus makes to... To us as Christians as we struggle, to us as Christians as we struggle with being bad Christians, as we struggle with our sin, as we struggle with pain, as we struggle with bereavement, the difference that Jesus makes. Now there's going to be a slight difference um, in today. I'm not going to be on my own as I'm speaking. Today I have a beautiful assistant. I know, isn't she a beauty? This is... Um, a, but now. She is beautiful, but don't be jealous, because you can possess this right next door. It should be on sale for £5,000 in any sane world. You can possess it for not 500 not 50 but can you guess how much? Oh, oh I say they're clever. For just a fiver, which is about the cost of the petrol that would get you to the gate as you leave. And yet you can have, well, you'll see, you'll see, this is amazing stuff. And basically, I'm going to ha- ask um, Tommy Goodwin, who wrote this, um, The Heart of Christ, Tommy to be our little helper today and to uh, guide us through um, this whole topic. And um, so what I want to do is I want to just introduce you to, <laughs> to um, Tommy, what a guy, um, and, and to this little book. Now, Tommy Goodwin... Um, he was one of those um, guys called Puritans. He was born in a little, tiny little village in Norfolk in 1600. And then he went up to Cambridge um, as a student. And then, aged about 20 or so, he got seriously religious. Um, if that's ever happened to you, you'll know that's not fun. And basically, for about seven years... He went through this religious stage that just ripped him apart. Because what was happening was he was scraping around inside himself, inside his conscience, his heart, to see if he was being holy enough. 
and constantly examining himself, am I good enough? Am I being holy enough? And it was only after seven years that a Norfolk pastor took him to one side and said, Thomas, no longer look to yourself for your contentment, but look out to Christ and rest on him. In his merits, rest. And Goodwin said, with that, he was free. He said, I'm come to this pass now that signs of grace in me will do me no good alone. I've trusted too much to these signs of holiness in me for assurance of my salvation, but I tell you now that Christ is worth all. Now, that really changed him. Now, by that moment of change, he'd actually been preaching for a few years. Interestingly, before he had that observation, you, you can be and be quite messed up. And before he'd had that observation, when he was preaching, basically in that navel-gazing stage of his life, his preaching was all about battering consciences. E.g., you lazy lot, you need to sort yourselves out, get more prayerful, get more holy, now come on, why aren't you doing it? Right? When he understood this, that changed. And he became a Christ-centered preacher. He became a, a winsome preacher who spoke of the glories and kindness of Christ so that hearts would be changed, so that people actually want to pray, actually want to live for Christ because they love him. His mentor was a great hero of mine, a man called Richard Sibbs. And shortly after that moment when he'd changed his understanding of how the gospel works, Sibbs said to him words that influenced him for the rest of his life. Richard Sibbs said, young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great advice? Young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. And that is precisely what Goodwin sought to do with the rest of his life. Now, he moved to Oxford. Um, some people have to. He was a missionary from the city of the light blue into that dark, dark blue city, uh, where he, he went slightly mad. Um, and um, what happened was, he wasn't completely, actually, but it, he um, developed there this real taste for nightcaps. And so if you just Google Thomas Goodwin, you can do it now if you want. Just find him on Wikipedia or, or later. You'll see this image of him... And he'll probably be wearing at least one nightcap, because sometimes he just loved them so much he'd wear whole collections on his head at one time. I know, I know what happens in Oxford, eh? And, well, so let's get back to the actual real point. Let me read you his dying words. They sum up really what he's all about. He said, with his last words, he said, I am going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. My bow abides in strength. Is Christ divided? No. I have the whole of his righteousness. I am found in him, 
not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is from God, which is by simple faith in Christ Jesus who loved me and who gave himself for me. His very last words, Christ cannot love me better than he does. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. Now I shall ever be with the Lord. (laughs) What great last words, eh? Now, this book he wrote because he saw that with many Christians, many Christians are as he'd been in those navel-gazing days. That they're looking at themselves the whole time and not looking at Christ. He put it like this. He said... Too many are carried away with the rudiments of grace in their own hearts and not Christ himself. Indeed, he said, the minds of many are so wholly taken up with their own hearts that Christ is scarce in all their thoughts. And Goodwin's whole ministry, he said, was he wanted people first look wholly out of ourselves to Christ. For Christ is our identity. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our standing before God. Now, why don't we do that? Asked Goodwin. Why do we not do that? Well, because, he said, we simply don't know Christ well enough. We don't know how kind, how generous, how compassionate Christ is And so, particularly in our guilt, we daren't look to him. And so we daren't make that look that is the source of health to us. And so Goodwin made it his life's mission to do exactly that, to draw the gaze of his people to Christ Now, this particular book, The Heart of Christ, was addressing a particular concern. He realized that Christians often feel that, okay, once upon a time when Christ was walking on earth, Christ was, he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate with them, he was compassionate and kind. But now, he's ascended and he's seated in glory, on a heavenly throne. And so we can very easily think, once upon a time he was tender and close and compassionate, but now he's just too aloof, like someone who's been highly promoted and will no longer speak to their old friends. Yeah? And so we can feel that Christ is now so highly exalted, we can't see him and we can't relate to him. And so Goodwin sets out In this book, he says, to take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his bowels, his very guts yearn towards us, even though he is now in glory. For he said, when believers see that Christ's capacious heart beats now only more strongly than ever with tender love for his own. Then he said, that may hearten and encourage believers to come 
more boldly unto the throne of grace. When they shall know just how sweetly and how tenderly his heart, though he's now in glory, is inclined towards them. So what he's got here and what we're going to try to tease out, I'm just nicking Goodwin, is comfort for all believers. But it is particularly comfort for those who are struggling. Comfort for those who are struggling Christians, struggling with their sin, struggling with pain, struggling with cold-heartedness, struggling with bereavement. And Goodwin's aim and my aim now is to encourage you, my friend, with what Christ is all about and with what Christ feels about you in your struggles right now. Now, how does Christ feel about you as he sits in heaven now? Well, you could think, how could you possibly know how Christ feels about us now in heaven? How can you possibly know such a thing? Goodwin thinks we can know. And he starts in John 13. Come with me to John 13. Now, John 13. This is the night before Jesus died. And John 13, we'll just go from verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, get this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, that's the context, he knows he's about to depart, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and that he was just about to go back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, and he served them. So knowing he was about to ascend to heaven in angelic glory, he washed their feet. They're not going to see him much more. And so Jesus makes it very clear, this is how I am towards you. And this is how I will always be towards you. Knowing that I'm going to go back to be with my father, I want you to know that. This is how I am. I live to stoop and wash you. And the thing is, he does all this for those he knows are about to betray him to death. So end of the chapter. Do you see verse 38? Now, he knows Peter is going to disown him. And that they're all going to run away. And look, he doesn't say, if you don't run away. If you are loyal to me, if you don't run away, then I'll pray for you. No. Even though he knows they'll betray him, 
he reassures them. He comforts them. He prays for them and he dies for them. Friends, even so does Jesus pray for us now. Even though daily we are unkind to him, he remains ever kind towards us. And over the next few chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, he tells his disciples how, like a loving bridegroom, he's going to go and prepare a place for his beloved bride, his people. And Goodwin says this. He says, It is as if Christ had said, The truth is, my people, I cannot be without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am, in the bosom of my Father. The truth is, I cannot live without you. So that we shall never part again, that's the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. That's John 17, 22. And then they betray him. After all that. As we do every day. They betray him and he's killed. Now, what is his first reaction to these traitors. He dies and he's raised again. And what are the very first words that he utters to speak of these traitors? He says, my brothers. And the very first words he uses to them is, peace be with you. To those who had sold him out direct, my brothers, peace be with you. Poor sinners, filled with the knowledge of our guilt and gross treachery, we feel we cannot look him in his piercing eyes, and that when he returns, how can we look in his face? knowing what we've done. But look, this is how Christ is. To the very ones who sold him out directly, he says, my brothers, peace be with you. Because he's dealt with the problem on the cross. And in fact, what Goodwin does is he goes through all the resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's very striking how he does it. He works through all the resurrection appearances of Jesus and he notices this. He says, through all those appearances, no sin of theirs troubled him but their unbelief. No sin of theirs troubled him but their unbelief. Because he has dealt with them all on the cross. His blood has covered their sin. And he wants now them to accept and enjoy what he has bought them with his blood. 
It is done. And so the only thing that troubles him is they just can't believe it. Can you? Knowing your failures, knowing that you are a sinner, a traitor to Jesus Christ, be not afraid. Because of the cross, your sin he will remember no more. Is he not kind? It is done. And he lives now to bless. And do you remember the very last thing that the disciples see of Jesus when he ascends to heaven to go and be with his father? And just before the cloud takes him from their sight, do you remember the last thing they see? What's he doing? He's blessing them. He's blessing them. He wants them to know that is how he will be in heaven. That is how he always is to us. He ascends. But then, how is he now, now that he's in heaven? Well, come with me to a glorious vision. Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 are really the same scene. In Revelation 4, John has this vision of the majesty of God on high, the Father in his loving rule. And it is a loving rule. And in Revelation 5, John just keeps looking at the throne, his eyes fixed on the throne. And as he looks, you can see in the first couple of verses of Revelation 5, he sees in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, what does he see? Do you see it? What does he see? He sees a scroll, like like an old book, completely sealed with seven seals. Now, it's the seven seals that really tell you what the book is about. Seven, what's that making you think of? Seven in the Bible. What's that making you think of? Seven. Probably pretty quickly, you know, some people sometimes say seven is the number of completion or perfection in the Bible. That's true. Why? What's seven associated with? Creation. Well done. Good luck. Creation, exactly. That's the th- thing you think of very quickly. And you see, this is very much associated with creation. For just as in six days, God brought order and beauty out of chaos and darkness. And on the seventh day he rests. So when these seven seals are opened, in these steady movements, as each seal is sliced, darkness and chaos and evil are driven out so that when the seventh seal is opened, there is rest. And that is what this seal is about, this scroll is about. It is the scroll of destiny. Just flick to the end of chapter 7 to see what's going on here. End of chapter 7. Now, John sees all these saints around the throne. And he asks in chapter 7, verse 13, who they are. And he's told, verse 14, these are 
are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. This is right where we're at today. These are saints who have suffered. But they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his lovely presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what opening the scroll does. And so when, go back to chapter 5, verse 2, it is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals when nobody is found who can do that? Well, of course John weeps. Verses 3 and 4. For if the scroll is not opened, then everything we hate is here to stay. Pain, cancer, the death of friends, our struggle with sin, we will keep on hurting, hating, dying, suffering, and there will be no end to it if the scroll is not opened. Weep, John, weep. And then, then we have verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes, it was always prophesied back from the days of Genesis that from the tribe of Judah, like a lion in kingly and unchallengeable power, he would come and that he would be the root of David, not just the descendant, not just the offspring of David, but David's root as well. Not just the branch, but the root for this lion is King David's own Lord. He is the Lord God of Israel and he has triumphed. And like a lion, triumphant, he can rip death to pieces Christians we have a lion in heaven and he is one who through the opening of this scroll will one day hunt down all your sorrows and at last kill every one of them but then John looks for this great lion and he sees, verse 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion is a lamb. Now, he's an awesome lamb. 
He has seven horns. Horns are always a symbol of power in the Bible. Uh, He's all-powerful, and with seven eyes, he's all-seeing. And everyone you see in heaven bows down before him, and he's powerful enough to walk up to the throne and take the scroll from the right hand of him who sits there. But he's a lamb. The one with the power to wield history and annihilate death is a lamb. Amazingly, the one on the throne is not merely powerful, and he is not a haughty dictator. He's a lamb. Lambs are approachable, are they not? Even little children can walk straight up to a lamb. Now, is that not different to us? Do you know what I mean when I say, for us, have you ever been given the tiniest whiff of power? What does it do to you? Tiniest little bit of authority, straight to your head. Right? Not with him. All this cosmic authority is given to him, and it doesn't go to his head. He's not proud. He's a lamb. He is our friend. He is our brother. I I just have to wonder what John must have made of that. John. For the one standing there in the center of the throne was his dearest friend. The one on the throne was the one he'd lived with for years, he'd walked with, the one he'd eaten with, the one who he'd leant against and eaten together with at the Last Supper. The one on the throne was his dearest friend. He's our dearest friend. In the um, 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, um, there was uh, one of the German princes around Heidelberg. He converted from Roman Catholicism to evangelicalism, and he wanted his people to be able to understand the new evangelical faith. So he put together a list of questions and answers that his people could memorize um, to be able to learn this uh, new faith. Uh, It was called the Heidelberg Catechism. Has anyone ever brought up with a catechism? Hands up, who's brought up with a catechism? Okay, that's great. Not many people are these days. But it's, it, basically, it's, a, it's kind of learning by rote, but a great way for people to get to know the evangelical faith. And in this wonderful list of questions and answers, here's one of the questions, one of my favorites. Get this as a question. It's question 52. What comfort... Is it to you that Christ shall return to judge the living and the dead? Would you ask the question that way? What comfort is it to you that Christ shall return to judge the living and the dead? Answer. That in all my sorrows, with uplifted head, I look for the very same one who beforehand offered himself to the judgment of God for me. I look for him who died as the curse 
for me. I look for him to return as judge who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but take me with all his chosen ones into everlasting joys and glory. You see, what it's getting at is, it is the very same one who died for us, who is the one who sits on the throne of heaven and who will return. Do you see, look at verse 6, the one on the throne is the lamb who was slain. He looks, this lamb, as if it had been slain. Please know, my brother, my sister, the one who is on the throne is the one who shed his blood for you. The one who is on the throne now went through the very horrors of the cross for you. Do you think it is possible, having gone through the cross, that he, even though he is now in heaven, could possibly forget you? Do you think, having gone through the cross for you, he could now feel a slackening in his compassion for you? No. No. In the one who is on the throne, we have the dearest friend. All his heart stretched out to us. We have on the throne of heaven one who has more tenderness and compassion for us than does anyone, than does your very best friend, than does even the most loving mother. The one on the throne is the lamb who shed his blood for you. John Bunyan, the uh, old author of Pilgrim's Progress, the big tinker from round Bedford. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, he was once looking at this kind of thing. He was actually looking at Acts 7. Acts 7 is the time when, do you remember Acts 7, Stephen is about to be martyred for his faith in Jesus. And just before he's stoned, do you remember what happens? He's just about to be stoned and he looks up to heaven. And Do you know, remember what he sees? He sees Jesus standing there as the lamb is standing here. And Bunyan, it's a very interesting observation, says this. He says, the sun, all-conquering, does normally sit in heaven, his work complete. But there are times when he stands, when the sufferings of his people so move him that he stands. Stephen is threatened, and Jesus is on his feet crying, Father, see my brother. That is the one who is on the throne. The one overflowing with compassion for us, with bloody compassion. The one who's bled for us. The one who knows how it feels to suffer. 
And so in all our sufferings and struggles, he sympathizes because there is no suffering you can go through that he himself has not gone through. He sympathizes. He knows. And if you're thinking, well, that sounds nice, but really? Does Jesus really know the rubbish I'm going through right now? The pain that I've been through recently. Does he really know that? Does Jesus know what it is to lose family and good friends? Yes. Remember, he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Does he know what it is then to feel abandoned by God? Yeah. More than we ever will on the cross. Does he know what it is to feel the deepest level of pain, heaving his guts out, wrecking all his body? Yes, on the cross. Does he know what it is to be rejected by men? Yes, he was spat on and despised, rejected by most. Do you know what it is to be tempted? Harassed by dark thoughts, driven even to the very brink of suicide. Yes. You remember? Forty days of gnawing hunger in the desert. And he hears the whisper, throw yourself down from the temple rooftop. When you see his loving sympathy, his compassion, when you see just who it is who is on the throne, well, don't you want to join in with the song of heaven and cry he's worthy? That's what happens in heaven. If you read on in Revelation 5, do you see this is how heaven reacts? They're all singing but from verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. You see, those who see this lamb think, I want him to be the one who opens the scroll. I want him to be the one who sits on the throne of the universe. The one who cares. The one who's not merely powerful to deal with it all, but the one who sympathizes, the one who loves. And do you know what? I've not yet told you the best bit. The bit that Goodwin really wants to major on for help for those who are struggling. It's Hebrews 4. And I've always been itching to get to this all week. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Hebrews 4 14. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every 
every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, he did not actually succumb to sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, come to Jesus. For he is so full of compassion and he has been through everything we go through. He sympathizes. But now, I've always enjoyed those verses, but Goodwin now moves on and spots something I'd never seen before. He goes on. Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Here we go. This is what Goodwin pulls out. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Now, what that's saying is that each high priest of Israel, each of them meant to be a shadowing of Jesus, our great high priest, was appointed as someone of their flesh and blood who knew what it is to be weak, who was appointed to have compassion on those who are ignorant and wayward or going astray or out of the way. In other words, he has compassion even on those who sin. And Jesus, while he did not himself sin, is like these high priests in every other way. He has compassion on those who are going astray. Like as a shepherd seeing his flock, he has compassion. And so, do you see, in heaven... We have not only one who will wipe away every tear one day. We have not only one who has compassion on us in our struggles and our troubles. Even more, we have one who has compassion on us in our sin. Would you believe it? Says Goodwin. He says, Your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. Fear not. Christ is so far from being provoked against you. All his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. But yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you from it by its ruin and its destruction. But his affections 
shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not what shall separate us from Christ's love. He's saying that the judge of the universe has judged our sin and dealt with it on the cross. And we are now the adopted children, the beloved children of our Heavenly Father. And so our sin is a lingering sickness in us. Now, fathers, he's saying, don't hate their children or cast them away when they get sick. Good fathers hate the sickness of their children. I know this as a father. I'll support Goodwin in this. When I see my little girls sick, I would gladly be rid of that illness and kill it with whatever medicine, whatever it takes. But as I see my girls sick, it moves me to more pity for them. I hate the sickness, but I pity them as they struggle in it. And Goodwin says, so it is with our God because he's adopted us. Brothers and sisters, when you sin, our Jesus is so kind that his first reaction to you in your sin is pity, compassion. That changes things. Because when you sin, you want to hide from him, don't you? Right? When you sin, you want to run from him. And you feel, I, I, I simply can't be with him. And when you sin, you, you can start yourself on this spiritual slide thinking, well, I'm guilty now. I just must run from him. But when you sin, he wants to run to you, to heal you, to help you. For he has brought you to himself. You are the beloved child of the Father, and the Son has washed you with his own blood, and the sin that remains in you, he longs to heal you of it. Now, people sometimes wonder if it's not dangerous to speak so very openly of Christ's eager willingness to show mercy. And people wonder, well, isn't it dangerous? Might this not give people a license to sin if they hear just how forward Christ is with his grace and mercy? But I, I just hope you can sense it. Do you sense it? That you think, okay, if he were less kind, then, yeah, I might try to stop sinning out of mere fear of his judgment. 
But with this Lord in his compassion and kindness, I will leave my sin out of love. When you just see how kind he is, do you not find it stirs you, wins you to him? I, I see this and I think, oh Jesus, if I every day saw afresh your kindness like this, then my sinful, dirty desires would simply be weaker than this desire I feel for you. For you win me away from my sin by your grace and mercy. And when you've sinned, when you've sinned, don't you sense it that you think upon that beating heart of compassion and it wins you back? You know, I want to go back to one so kind, so compassionate, who wants to heal me of this sickness and one day will. John Bunyan said, Mercy is the only antidote to sin. Isn't that interesting? Mercy is the only antidote against sin. Tis of a thawing nature. Mercy will loose the heart that is frozen up in sin. Yea, mercy will make the unwilling willing to come to Jesus Christ for life. Friends, in all our sorrows, with uplifted head, we may look to the very one who died for us as the one. He is the one enthroned in heaven. And Christ, well, he sits, or perhaps he stands there now, his great once ruptured heart stirred by our difficulties. All his will bent upon opening that scroll that he might defeat darkness forever, that he might see that hunger affects us no more, thirst affects us no more, this Revelation 7 vision that he might lead us to streams of living water where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Friends, I hope you've seen as we've looked through this series, is this not a Jesus worth knowing? Is this not a Jesus worth making known to the world? Here is a God so unlike any other God. He is, as John Calvin put it, love covered over with flesh. So good. That is the one enthroned in heaven. Now, I have to ask then, if you don't know Jesus, if that's you, well, my friend, wouldn't you want a friend like this? And if that's you, wherever you're at, Wherever you're at, 
Whatever's happening in your life, however you feel it's gone off the rails, wherever you're at, you can come to him as to a lamb and you will find he is a lion for you. And if you do know Jesus, then my brother, my sister, you could not have a stronger gentler friend than Jesus. All compassionate for you in your struggles, in all your struggles, and all powerful finally to remove them. In heaven, where they see him clearest, where they know him best, none can help but cry, worthy. Worthy is this lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the lamb of God. You have bled for us and shared our weakness. You are the lion of gloriously triumphant over all that is wrong. As we remember what you are like, oh, we long to see you. We long for that day when, like those saints who've come through the tribulation, clothed in blood-washed linen, we see your lovely face hide under your shelter, all our tears wiped away. Our brother, our protector, how you win our hearts. To you and to the Father of mercies be all glory, honor, power, and praise forever and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.